0: Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tollist, and this week we've got a special episode looking ahead to 2024 in politics as we enter a big election year here in Westminster. We'd be to give you an insider's guide on what to look out for, which will be the crunch issues and where the race to number 10 will be won and lost. I'm delighted to be joined by two of the lobby's finest, returning guest Natasha Clark, LBC's political editor, and Zoe Grunewald, incoming political correspondent at The Independent. And alongside them, my colleague here at Paul Home, our own political editor, Adam Payne. So, starting with you, Adam, as we go into 2024, as I said, the kind of election year, from the kind of the Conservatives, we've looked at. In the last couple of podcasts that kind of rushed Sunak's next difficult year and kind of 2020 and how that's kind of gone for him. 2024, we're expecting, I, th- I think, kind of another reset, potentially a big kind of keynote speech from Sunak. What are we kind of going to expect from that? And where is he going to kind of try and push the Conservatives to try and claw back some of this polling lead he's not been able to take away from from Labour so far?
1: Thanks, Alan. It's nice to be back on the podcast after no a hiatus. Well, you said it's election year. Of course, it could be January 2025 election. <laughs> I mean, we'll probably get onto this later. right? Uh, yeah. I find that unlikely. I hope not. Um, Campaigning
0: on Christmas Day will be very fun. Yeah.
1: I mean, well, if if the problems of the Tory party is nobody likes them and then they make people campaign over Christmas, that would be a curious strategy. What can we expect next year? Well, this has been written about a lot. I think we're going to see essentially the longest unofficial general election campaign ever And it's already felt like that towards the back end of this year, particularly since late summer when we had the stuff on net zero and whatnot. And
0: kind of the conference speeches from both parties. Yeah, exactly.
1: I think from the Tory party, from the Tory government, everything is going to be related to the manifesto, the electoral strategy. Firstly, you know, what's our narrative? How do we win people back over? And I think a lot of that will be about the economy about, you know, relying on the headline figures improving and perhaps people actually feeling it in their pockets and then that giving the Prime Minister the beginnings of a narrative, a sort of the bet of a devil you know narrative. Yeah, yeah. And also finding divisions with Labour. We've already seen in the last few weeks, I was at the PM speech in North London a few weeks ago and he was talking about the twenty-eight billion he was trying to present Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves as a different side of the same coin as Liz Truss and Quasi essentially, you know, they may claim they're a change party, but you still can't trust them with the economy. We're expecting a PM speech early in the new year, where I guess you'll try to get the year off to a strong start, build some momentum. But I think predicting what we can expect from the Tory party, from the prime minister, it will be attempting at least to hammer this message that Labour can't be trusted on the economy. Yeah. And also trying to find those dividing lines in a bid to try and reduce that polling lead, which despite the best and varied efforts of the Tory party this year hasn't really moved. No, no, obviously not.
0: Zoe, so we, we kind of know from what Adam said there that the economy is going to be a big thing. We know that migration, again, is going to be a, a big thing from the way that there's so much been focus on Rwanda and kind of getting illegal migration down. It's one of the PM's five pledges that he's trying to get this backlog of, of asylum applications down. You know, do you think there's going to be kind of a third prong to it? Is that enough? for the Conservatives to take forward to an election? Or is there going to be a third prong? Is it going to be perhaps on NHS, trying to sort that out, or perhaps maybe on housing? We know that there's going to be speeches on housing. Is there going to be another prong of that campaign?
2: I actually think if there's going to be a third prong, it's going to be convincing the public that the Tories can hold it together (laughs) and not try and kill each other before a general election absolutely the NHS is always consistently in the public's sort of top three priorities and we know that the NHS is in all sorts of crisis as it always is in terms of infrastructure but also in terms of funding staff things like that but I actually think with immigration and the economy being such dominant issues which very much is by the Conservatives own making yeah, yeah. the only other thing they have the bandwidth for is something that will be forced on them which is that convincing the public that the Conservatives deserve to lead again after and- 14
0: years of being in power. Exactly,
2: and can remain united. And something I think Sunak will be very worried about over the Christmas period is all his conservative colleagues returning back to their constituencies, sitting in their WhatsApp groups, listening to what their constituents have to say and being almost radicalised by the opinions of others, um, how well they're dealing with immigration, how well they're dealing with the issues and coming back with renewed vendettas or <laughs> renewed ideas for yeah. what Sunak should or shouldn't be doing. Yeah. So I think that's actually probably the secret third big worry that Sunak's really dealing with.
0: Yeah, definitely. As we saw towards the end of, of 2023 with the kind of the, the crisis between the warring factions of the, the party, Tasha, that is definitely a big thing to watch out for is, is Sunak, has done, you know, a good job in parts on party management. If we think back to the Windsor framework, the way he kind of kept the party together on that and there was a much smaller rebellion over that stuff than there was. But then obviously, Party started to break apart again towards the end of 2023. Do you think that Sunak is going to spend more time than he perhaps wants to do on keeping those MPs together on the straight and narrow and all facing the right direction ahead of an election?
3: He inevitably will face a really tricky few months with party management because I fear that that is where the Conservatives get unstuck. And I fear that's where we do head towards an election because... The government were really worried after losing that vote on infected blood at the end of last year, which I hadn't expected. it. Which you know, no one had expected. Too, yeah. We saw Labour team up with like really key members of the Conservative Party and and defeat them quite comfortably. And that is exactly why we saw such a huge panic in the government about the Rwanda vote because they feared that the same thing was going to happen again. In the end, that didn't materialise, and those Tory rebels basically bottled it, didn't they, at the last minute? Um, well, they
0: were won over by the by the bacon sandwiches and the coffees at, at exactly. Downing Street, right? N-
3: and not smoked salmon, as was fakely <laughs> reported. Um, but yes, I think he will spend much more time on party management than he would like to. He has to keep all of these people on side. And, you know, you see this really balancing act that we had at the mm. end of last year with, you know, one side of the party wanting to push this Rwanda legislation even tougher. And the other side saying we are not going to take it if you budge even an inch so i think that's going to be the narrative that will play out over the next few months and the whips office will be watching very carefully I'm sure. (laughs) yeah
0: rwanda just uh, on that adam on the rwanda stuff what are the kind of the next the key points or the next kind of stages and you know if we're going to see the rebels obviously Mm. as as tash said they they marched up the hill and then sort of marched back down again we had no tory mps voting against the bill just a lot of abstentions
1: yeah well i think the general consensus was that while the pm Enjoyed, maybe not enjoyed—the wrong word. He experienced a relatively comfortable victory in light of some of the rumours that were going around earlier that day. It's really a big fight delayed rather than a big fight avoided because those rebels who agreed not to go on nuclear did so on the understanding that the government would listen to their ideas. The and that's bill, on both sides, of the, the party bill as cash right? amendment, which <laughs> we're all very excited about. Yeah. What I have picked up, which I found interesting, is that there's confidence around the whips and around the government when push comes to shove they'll be able to pick off some of the right-wing rebels of course there's a core of them who will probably vote against when push comes to shove but there are others who will probably in the name of party unity perhaps with the promise of reward perhaps input into the manifesto that sort of thing will get picked off by the government yeah i mean the government the government position is that it can't make big changes to the rwanda bill because it would annoy the Rwandan government to the point of walking away from it yeah. and they want to stay within clear legal parameters. So the changes it can make are pretty minor. Yeah, and
0: if it goes the other way, it will weaken it to the point where it won't actually right. be effective,
1: right? Yeah, and of course we have this threatened One Nation Rebellion which you know, would probably result in a House of Commons defeat. So what I've found interesting looking ahead to 2024 is this feeling, this quiet confidence that the right wing, so the ERG, I hate using this term, the five families... <laughs> I'll cancel myself for that. But that, out, but that wing of the party just aren't as organised, as strong as it used to be. No, like back and in the Theresa May years, when they essentially brought it down, they don't have the same level of organisation as they did, you know, three or four years ago.
3: <laughs> There's a few reasons though we're not in a Brexit years though, yeah. and despite the comparisons to that really tumultuous period of time, if the Conservative Party don't vote for this Rwanda policy, it's not like they get a even harder Rwanda policy. This is what we have with No Deal Brexit, yeah. the, the threat of voting it down was far harder and and B, the, the the reasons that people are split in the Conservative Party are much vaster than they arguably were over Brexit. Some Tory hardliners want to bring down this government and they, yeah, yeah. they want to force a leadership contest or they want to just bring Rishi down or they want an election or they're losing their seats and they just don't care anymore. <laughs> There's so many reasons. It's not... Uh, they're not going to vote as a bloc, like you said, Adam. Yeah, they're yeah. not united in what they want. And there's, there's absolutely no one that's really rallying yeah. uh, as a group behind mm. these people. But well,
1: those MPs who would quite like to see Rishi gone are on the right of the party. Yeah. Like Damien Green doesn't want, his, doesn't want an election. No, He definitely doesn't. He doesn't want um, he doesn't want a new prime minister. And I think that has become a bigger part of the thinking in number 10.
0: Zoe, on that kind of, I suppose, that Sunak's role in that, we've kind of, we talked on, on this podcast a few times about how the fact that he's not led a national campaign before. The one sort of campaign he led last year against Liz Truss, he, he resoundingly lost amongst the Tory members. and But Keir Starmer's not led a national campaign in in the same way either. They're both kind of new to this. What do you think we're going to see from Sunak in terms of that message discipline, I suppose? We talked about what, what the message is going to be. But that kind of discipline, that kind of focus, as we say that you know, we're going to spend the next six months and beyond potentially... On that kind of an election footing.
2: Hmm. So I think the closest sort of point of reference we have is probably his conference speech. So there was a few sort of dustings of policy in there, so for example the smoking ban, A-levels, various kind of little individual policies that he kind of wants to make his legacy and he'll use to talk about what he stands for. I think the big thing will be the economy, the sort of slow recover of the economy, Basically, Sunak and Hunt will want to look like a safe pair of hands, one that is taking the right tough measures to get the economy up and running again. And we also saw this this message that he wanted to be the sort of candidate for change, which is obviously a yeah. strange one to make when you've been in power for 13, 14 years. But I think he's going to keep going with that. I mean, both those conference speeches from Starmer and Sunak were the beginning of something we're going to hear a lot over the next year, because it's basically what they want to hammer into the minds of the mm. public. Yeah. Yeah. The, the difficulty will be for Sunak is how much he can hold his cool. I think we've seen a number of times recently when he's been faced with public scrutiny that he has got slightly tetchy
0: yeah that's the word it's the key word isn't it tetchy, t- tetchy which he hates that word as well <laughs> he pushed back about it when he was interviewed by Katie Borser but Tater wasn't he he, was like, he said he was enthusiastic not tetchy
2: yeah like but he, no Sunak you're not you're no. tetchy yeah. it's the sort of twitchy eye that really gives it away I think yeah. but it will be interesting to see when he's sort of head to head with Starmer in a Hustings how that would kind of go down yeah i mean we saw sunak in front of the covid inquiry and he actually held his call quite well and what sunak is good at is the detail yeah going over things in a kind of authoritative way he's good he's quite good at speaking you know he talks with a lot of authority on certain subjects but it's when i think curveballs are thrown or he thinks things aren't going the way he wanted them to yeah and those things can happen a lot during a general election period
0: absolutely especially if it's stretching out for a long time there's more expanses for you know we've already seen potentially like by elections being called in various places it's going to that's going to knock you off of course, exactly,
2: um, um, and especially when you have rebels behind your back who are yes. very keen, as Natasha was saying, to stick the knife in. That's the sort of thing that I think could throw Sunak off quite easily.
0: Yeah, Natasha, as Zoe points out, there, his conference speech was cobbled together various policies that essentially he was interested in. He likes maths and he hates smoking and he hates H S two, so that's why <laughs> those made it in there. It didn't really add up to what you might call Sunakism, and I wonder if he's going to have the opportunity in 2024 to really harness that, or whether it is just going to, again, be a mixture of those various disparate bits, like, as Zoe says, like, f- making sure the economy's starting to look a little bit better, inflation's coming down, debt's coming down, that he can point to those five pledges. Or is he going to have kind of bold policies that say that this is what Sunakism is and setting it against whatever Starmer and Labour are doing?
3: I, I don't think that's going to, I'm afraid, form as much of a part of what Rishi Sunak wants to do as, as, as he wants it to be, yeah, right? Yeah. So he is obviously has set out those those three things but they are very much what he would like to do, rather than the narrative of the government, and you know, prim- being prime minister is not just about what you want to do; it's about responding to what's the, possible. Yeah, what's possible, but also just responding to the hand that you're dealt, right? And and that's so much of, of, of what he's doing at the moment is trying to get the economy back on track, trying to get the Rwanda bill passed, which is not was never his idea; it was Boris Johnson's idea. He's inherited it. He's now stuck with it because he can't ditch it. Yeah, and he is a prime minister that's having to clean up lots of the messes of the trust government in terms of the economy. So he is a prime minister really tied by by the past, and he's trying to sort of make this clean break and say, Look, I'm, I'm the guy that can take you f- through into the future. And that's what he's trying to do with these priorities about smoking, about A levels, and, and put forward his vision. But I just don't think it's a vision that the British public are very interested in. No. Like, it's something so long term. And, you know, I know it's a very much a thing that people always tell us we would love our politicians to be thinking more long term and to not be so short termist and opportunistic. But actually, when push comes to shove, they want policies that they can see very quickly they yeah. want tax cuts now yeah, they yeah. want they hate the idea that government works incredibly slowly and they want to see their lives getting better and if they cannot see their lives getting better for the next 6 to 12 months mm. then they will be seriously thinking about voting conservative again and i think that's where many people who are voting at the moment yeah. are just going to look back and go i'm not any better off in my in my wallet and i can't see any of Rishi Sunak's policies actually helping me no. in the long term they might be supportive of them like the smoking policy is popular Yeah, it's nice to have. It's it's lovely, exactly. It's just not what's going to win him in the election. Before
0: we move move on from Conservatives to to Labour, but Adam, just one last thing on on that, whether obviously there's going to be another fiscal event in the Mm. the spring. The spring budget could be brought forward potentially and we might finally see that kind of income tax cut that has been talked about that wasn't in the autumn statement and obviously potentially other things like inheritance tax, which may be a way of sort of... Saying, look to Labour, look, this is something that we're going to do. Would you reverse it? Because we know that Labour are not going to reverse a lot of the things that the Conservatives might do. You know, do we think they're going to? We're going to see that a, a kind of a big fiscal event that's not just as much about making tax cuts, but also dividing the line with, with
1: Labour. Well, I think you've summarised it perfectly. Surely we're going to get that, right? It's mm. the last fiscal event before an election. The autumn statement delivered some tax cuts, but Tory MPs really wanted to see more. And they accepted it on the understanding that we're going to, you know, we want to see a hell of a lot more come the spring. There are going to be tax cuts. You mentioned income tax. I'm not sure if you mentioned inheritance in but I think that will yeah, feature yeah. as well. But look, ultimately, it's one thing announcing them. It's one thing pointing to headline economic data and pointing at it and saying, look how much better it is. But people need to feel it. Yeah. And that's the thing. And even if you do start to feel it, I mean, when John Major lost in 97, like the economy was actually, you know, in a pretty good place, mm. and, he, and he's still lost. I mean, look at what's happening in the US at the moment, like Joe Biden's pointing at headline economic data and saying, oh, I'm doing a really good job. Here. Yeah, everything's flashing green on But because people feeling it in yeah. their pockets. So it's that lag between tax cut, I don't know, inflation number reducing to what feels like a good level, that lag between those things, and then people actually feeling it in their lived experience. And I think that lag and the length of that lag
3: That's why Um, they've brought this tax cut forward to the beginning of the year, right? Because they want people to feel it. And I think that if we have not already, at the time that this podcast is going out, Rishi Sunak will be making a big deal about this this spring. When this tax cut comes in, you're feeling it now. I'm taking action Mm, now. So he will absolutely jump on the back of that, whether people will.
1: Yeah, I I, I guess the inheritance tax one's going to be interesting for Labour. Yeah, definitely. But
0: that's one of the things actually I found with, with Sunak and how skilled he is as a politician. Quite often when he gets given individual cases or individual circumstances about a person, whether how well they're doing in their personal circumstances, or there was homelessness at the quest- last Prime Minister's questions it was asked about. And he didn't talk about that person's individual circumstances. He talked about the headline figures. He talked about how, oh, well, actually, the economy is broadly doing very well, and actually, oh, and also the overall figure on homelessness has come down and not touching on those individual stories. And you think he's going to have to face a lot more of that when it comes to a campaign, and that's something he needs to perhaps get better at that kind of personal touch, I mm. suppose.
2: He's like a quantitative prime minister, isn't he? He's <laughs> like, but these are the figures and you can see there's been 0.2% growth or whatever the number is that yeah. he, you know he wants to point at. I think
0: Gordon but Brown once was asked about, someone's asked about how much it was costing to fill up their car with petrol. And he started to talk about the cost of oil by the barrel. Mm. you know, And it's like, that wasn't really, it didn't link to people's actual- and,
2: and in some ways it's good to have a prime minister like that. It's good to have a prime minister who's really on the details. You know, I think that's something that people felt was lacking under Johnson, for example. Um, Um, And something completely different was going on under (laughs) Truss. Yeah, we're just going to forget about that period, yeah. Um, But I think he does seem to struggle a lot with those personal accounts that Starmer loves to throw at him during PMQs. And he does it a lot and it always riles Sunak up. Yeah, And unfortunately, I think it just really taps at this issue, which actually a lot of Conservative MPs were worried about when Sunak was in front um, as a candidate in the leadership contest, which was that... Does he just come across as a bit too out of touch? You know, does he just come across like a Goldman Sachs managerial type who doesn't really know what it's like for a lot of working people in this country?
0: Couldn't use contactless, couldn't use his contactless exactly. card, all that kind of you, stuff. Yeah,
2: private, all those things that the media love to hammer him about, you know, the private jet use, the yep. Bluetooth coffee mug or whatever it was. <laughs> I mean, don't even know how that would <laughs> yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. But I think, unfortunately, he does demonstrate that when he gets tetchy in PMQs.
0: Yeah. we well, moving on to, to, to Labour then and what we're kind of, the, the opposite side of this kind of argument. You know, Zoe, there's lots of talk about them being, you know, 20 points ahead and had been for a long time and and that famous kind of phrase about trying to carry a vase across the M25 and, and not drop it. You know, as a, as a political strategy, are we going to see Labour try and set out more, set out a vision that's not just we're not the Tories or we're going to continue to see quite a defensive strategy and not separating themselves out too much perhaps not to scare the horses, or perhaps because they don't want to commit themselves and set something that the Tories can oppose, I suppose.
2: I think their approach is going to be defined by caution, and I think that's because they just get so much scrutiny, especially for their spending plans. Yep. It just gives the Conservatives such an easy opening to attack them and to say, well, where are you going to get that money from? For example, we've already seen it with their, their only real big bit of spending they've promised is their £28 billion green plan, and already the Conservatives, Jeremy to that, Hunt, are saying... Yeah well, how are they going to fund that when um, inflation is this much?
3: And uh, And they've already started to row row back on it and say it's not one for right away, haven't they? Yeah,
0: (laughs) by the end of the parliament, that sort of thing. Exactly.
3: So they're clearly
2: really spooked by this. And I think that's a frustration to a lot of people who want to see something a bit more radical. I think Labour have tried to be sort of radical in some ways they've talked a little bit about constitutional reform they've talked yep. a little bit about planning reform I mean none of those things really get people outside of Westminster going unfortunately Ooh. they do get people House outside of God's Westminster House of Lords reform i am yeah.
0: grubbing my hands Yeah. Um,
2: but I think so I think what they're really going to focus in on is being the safe pair of hands the grown-ups are back in the room they're back in charge we are not going to make any unfunded spending pledges we're going to be boring we're going to talk about reform of institutions over just injections of public spending yeah. we're going to be long-term in You know, this whole sticking plasters thing that Starmer keeps talking about. And I think they're hoping that will be enough Mm. to get the electorate on side. And in some ways, when there's just been so much infighting, it kind of does do the job because people are like, at least Labour is potentially a serious government. But I think for some people, there will be arguments about, are you really telling us you can fix the NHS without an injection of funding? When buildings are literally crumbling yeah so it's a really difficult balance but i don't think we'll see any massive radical plan set out i think they're going to keep going cautiously they're going to keep attacking the tories and they're just going to present Starmer as a boring but safe pair of hands yeah
0: adam on that kind of the, the issue i suppose is with you talked about 97 when blair took over the economy was in a bit, much better place labour were able to to make more promises on on spending mm. and, and in a way they're not going to be able to even if the economy's turning around from where it is now it's not going to be in a great place and there's going to be lots of other other factors You know, is that going to be enough and do you think that, that Labour's strategy is going to shift when the finishing line is in sight you know or, or are we going to see you know a more kind of safety first defensive pitch from them
1: well I that? agree with Zoe completely and I'd, I'd make three points as many as three go, points go on for it, it. The first point I'd say is that I agree with that. I think you know, Keir Starmer is an Arsenal fan, and the famous chant "One nil to the Arsenal." <laughs> yeah, I think a win's a as win. As long as as long as Labour don't concede, we don't mind scoring not many goals. Yeah, yeah. Like for them, it's purely defensive. They don't want any chinks in the armor, whether it's on the economy, or cultural issues, or legal migration. They just want to be completely uh, vulnerable. Right? Yeah, they, they don't want any sort of sign of weakness. Secondly why I kind of have a bit of sympathy with this is that, let's say I'm right, which is seldom true, and and the election is next autumn, yeah. why would you announce policies, your yeah, big yeah. policies now? Because either they'll be good and they'll poll well and the government will just nick it, mm-hmm. or if the government thinks they can really uh, weaponize that, they'll just knock seven shares out of it. So like, why would you do that now? But policies different to vision, yeah. isn't it? And I think with vision, I think the thing Labour couldn't quite work out in 2023, and this is perhaps one of its big challenges this year, is on one hand, they're stressing that if we get in power, we're going to be inheriting an awful situation. We're going to have to be really fiscally conservative, while also trying to articulate a message of hope. And I think the challenge of marrying those two things, yeah. making them compatible and, and agreeing with each other is really hard. And I don't think they, they quite got that in 2023. And I think looking ahead to this year in the election, how you make those two things work together, complement one another. As was just said, you know, how can you really convince people that you, under Labour, the NHS will improve while you're also not committing any serious spending? It's, it's all sorts of dilemmas which I think are going to be the challenge for Labour when it comes to its messaging, its narrative and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, Tash, this week... Starmer setting out his platform for for 2024. You know, do you think that we talked about whether Sunakism has been properly articulated? Has Starmerism been properly articulated? And will we see that in in 2024, do you think?
3: I think in terms of vision, what you were saying a minute ago, Adam, I think he did articulate that quite well in his conference speech, the idea of like, taking a broken Britain and fixing it again its such a message that resonates. We haven't really seen much of it since that conference speech. I don't think it's really been woven into the fabric of Labour and their comms and their strategy and where they're going but I would expect to see that form an entire part of Keir Starmer's year yeah it really um, plays
0: into that idea that you know, everything's broken public services are broken exactly. you, you, know, you drive to the station over potholes you get to the train station the train's cancelled to get to the hospital and your appointment's been cancelled exactly. all that kind of stuff mm. you can if you're the person that says like, I've got the key to fix that
3: yeah know? the problem is obviously that's a good start but then you need to back it up with exactly what are you going to do to change it and that is what the Conservatives are going to drive home all year well mm. what's your plan and obviously yes while you're 20 points ahead in your polls why would you outline all of this stuff a to get it nicked and b just to trip yourself up because (laughs) the conservatives will pick holes in absolutely everything you do but when it does come to an election when crunch time comes you know you're going to have to provide more than just i'm going to fix it promise promise Mm. you guys don't worry it's all going to be okay under me and putting that balance of you know the, the the country looks a bit rubbish right now but i will i will pick it up and i will mm. i will do it and without then, s- saying how it's it's just going to make voters not come out and vote at all
0: no and so what what, what kind of campaign do you think that, that starmer and labour going to want to run i think this year is going to be a long campaign it's probably going to be quite a dirty campaign yeah. i think and how much a labour kind of kind of lean into that we saw some of those labour tested out some quite tough um, <laughs> to use the word uh, <laughs> lightly uh, very tough kind of poster campaigns earlier in the year criticizing sunak for stuff
3: we're going to see that we're going All year. Yeah. It sounds like. And Starmer seems to be comfortable with that, right? He's really happy with that, apparently, according to people who who are close to him that that say that he signed off on on it all, or at least was comfortable with the idea of it all. And they know that that the Conservatives are going to rip. Uh, the stuffing out of him for his record as DPP. We've known that's going to be part of an election campaign for a long time and they are ready to take that fight and they know how much the Conservatives are going to try and cling on to power, that it really matters to them. But yeah, these attack ads are going to form Mm. a real part and I don't think they're going to wait for the election for them to come. I think we should start to to see them very soon. I
1: was going to say, on the day we're recording this, there was a story in the Mail this morning about how Keir Starmer during his time as a lawyer, use European law to defend a dog. And I thought, <laughs> that's an incredibly positive story. Like, I, I, I'd, I'd absolutely love that if I was Labour leader. But yeah, it is going to form a big part of it. I'm just coming back to what Tash said about the second part of Labour's challenge, which I agree with completely about, persuading people that, right, but are you actually the people to solve this? I think two themes heading into 2024, borne out in lots of recent polling. Well, one theme, I guess, is a sense of public pessimism yeah and a lack of public trust in politicians to deliver so against that pretty gloomy backdrop it's going to be even harder than usual for an opposition party who's been out of power for ages to convince people that yeah we all agree that the government's rubbish but like what are you actually going to do and when people are so pessimistic lack of trust and i do think there's a risk of at the next election turnout being being really low because there is such a a feeling of negativity towards Westminster politics. And that it's a massive challenge for Labour Maybe Keir Starmer's hardest challenge since taking over as leader. He talked about this phased approach where he repairs the party brand, points out the flaws in the Tory government, and then the third bit, which is convincing people that yeah. you should be elected. I, that think was that, be I think that might be the hardest part. part, it, the hardest part. Yeah.
0: yeah, absolutely. I remember we had James Schneider, who used to work for Jeremy Corbyn on the podcast in the summer, and he said that currently he thinks that Labour are pursuing a strategy that's going to make Starmer Prime Minister then might make him the most hated man in Britain afterwards because he's failed to sort of set out that that kind of vision and I suppose I guess part of it will come on to now like what is if Labour do win an election what kind of victory they do get you know if they have a big majority then it kind of gives him more but we've seen obviously other parties perhaps will we'll come on to the SNP now actually Zoe there's a bit of an implosion all year really from from the SNP obviously they lost the Rutherglen by-election and the kind of the, the fear is that's they're only going in one direction and, and that Labour's path the majority could come through by winning those sort of 20, 30 seats mm. in in Scotland. The SNP are going to be in real trouble I think still for most of 2024, right?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think that's true. And I think Rutherglen was a really good example of, of what can happen and, and what can happen for Labour. In a way, Starm has been incredibly lucky that the Tories have managed to implode and the SNP are sort of imploding at the same time. Yeah. And I think, you know, there is a danger of conflating the poll lead with Labour's popularity but to be honest I don't think Labour are doing that if you talk to any kind of Labour MP or any Labour advisor they'll always say we know a lot of our poll lead is down to these parties yeah it's quite
0: soft right yeah
2: these parties have taken so many hits in the last year but yeah, absolutely, it's going to be a difficult year for the SNP. And I mean, I'm not going to make any predictions about the kind of seats that Labour might might win. But I think it does look like there could be a, a quite a large victory around the corner. And the question is, where does that leave the SNP? Where does it leave its purpose? Would any deal kind of be struck? You know, would the SNP be prepared to vote down a King's speech, for example? Would that even matter? Yeah. Um, all these things that I think the SNP previously thought they had in the bag as kind of techniques to, to, to regain some control and have some power in Westminster are looking increasingly unlikely. And uh, I'm sure putting a big grin on Stam's face.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. One of the parties, obviously, uh, there's lots of by-elections in 2023, Lib Dems did really well. They've they obviously targeted it. But when it comes to a general election, Tash, where do you think they are, really? Do you think they're going to get back to those levels 2005 2010 with getting 50 seats or are they going to be squeezed out by Labour and in all of those kind of seats and and not pick up the the kind of the blue wall seats from the Conservatives
3: I think they will pick up some seats and obviously they're going from quite a low quite a low base base there but obviously Rishi Sunak because having him over Boris Johnson in terms of that sort of strategy which where you think he would go for and you know Boris was incredibly successful at that 2019 coalition, getting those Red Wall voters together, getting that Tory-true Blue South together and that sort of ex-UKIP voter as well and, everybody, and, you know, coming together. Rishi will find it a lot harder to, to bring those strands of the Conservative Party together, but where he will be more successful, if it won't be in the Red Wall, will be in... yeah. Trying to hold on to some of those true blue seats at that where the Lib Dem marginals but equally we've seen every by election, yeah, and we've seen the Lib Dems take seats off the Conservatives in by elections too. I think that will yeah will surely maybe. happen yeah, to maybe, some extent. Maybe, maybe the ask the next his election. foreign secretary,
0: David Cameron, because he was very successful in 2015. Exactly, in okay. taking out all of the Lib Dem seats in yeah. the South West. if I
3: were him, I'd be having some conversations with him, being like, right, mate, what's our strategy? Because <laughs> <How> you've <laughs> did it, and no, generally I think that's that's exactly what what he can get from David Cameron. Yeah, you know yeah. he's got this grown. Statesman back in the room like vibe, but also he was the last guy to to win an overall majority apart from Boris Johnson, yeah, so yeah. he can provide some of that leadership for how to how to win. And you know, David Cameron's campaign against the Lib Dems was brutal, so it was, yeah, you know, that it was. We could be seeing another fight on two fronts yeah. there.
0: The, the third party uh, of these one I want to talk about is Reform mm. Adam you know we obviously we saw Reform do okay in those two by-elections at the, towards the end of 2023 but crucially the amount of votes they got was more than Labour's majority essentially yeah. so there is a chance that they could in lots of seats even even in 2019 when the Brexit party stood there were lots of seats that Labour held on to they would have lost had the Brexit party not stood The defeat could have been even worse you know what are we going to see from Reform with kind of a re-energised Nigel Farage out of the jungle what are we kind of see from Reform in 2024
1: What I say about reform is that why perhaps we shouldn't get too excited about reform, this is the case for that, is that unlike UKIP back in the day, which performed very well in by-elections and local elections, UKIP actually used to outperform its national polling in by-elections and local elections. Reform has done pretty poorly in those contests. The other argument, so why perhaps we should take them seriously, why Tory MPs should be pretty worried about them, is that in recent polling published in the the weeks leading up to this recording, across the board, has given reform increases. And in Tory marginals, where every vote really does matter, if reform can take a few percent off the Tories, then that could result in them losing that seat and perhaps helping Labour or Lib Dems come through the middle. I've written Nigel Farage in massive letters because I think if he decides to return whether that be reform leader or perhaps he just becomes a much more visible part of the campaign. I think that's probably, if you're a Tory MP sat here in early 2024 thinking, right, what's the worst thing that could happen to us this year? How could our already pretty bad situation get worse? I think Farage coming back campaigning in your seat and, whatever, yeah. and being a visible active campaigner to the point where the British public see reform as the Nigel Farage party yep. in the same way they saw UKIP and the Brexit party as the Nigel Farage party. Mm. That is a massive problem for the Tory party. So we talk talking about that polling though. I mean,
0: reform were up as high as sort of 12%. 12% of the public are not going to go out and tick the box next to the reform candidate at the next election, right? So so where kind of do you think that they are and what kind of can they do obviously famously in 2019 the Brexit party did a deal with the conservatives and didn't stand in hundreds of seats and therefore didn't have the impact. What could Rishi Sunak could offer them this time round that they would want to be able to do such a deal?
2: It's a good question whether that would be something the party would be interested in. I mean, we're seeing a lot of noise from some on the right and it's worth pointing out exactly what Tashin Adam said earlier which is that that group of rebels on the right isn't entirely cohesive you know they have different it's very noisy
0: but it's not necessarily exactly they have
2: different aims there is definitely part of that group that would look to reform and possibly would be talking to reform I'm Mm. sure about the sort of things that they are both interested in one event that will be really interesting to see next year is if there's a by-election in Scott Benton's constituency yes He is the MP who was suspended because um, he was basically lobbying, lobbying for, a, for a, yeah. a, a fake gambling company. And he's now facing a suspension, which could lead to a by-election in his constituency. And if there is a by-election, that's the sort of area where you'd expect reform to maybe do fairly well. Yeah, v- in Blackpool.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, and, and Tash, kind of on that then, do you think that we go back to talking about Rwanda earlier, it's actually that's kind of linked to this in a big way, because obviously they've, they've shifted from just being that kind of party, just being about, Brexit and Europe, but also being about illegal migration mm. and so if Rwanda if those planes don't get off the ground does the threat from reform perhaps peak I suppose
3: Yeah I think it does but yeah I personally think that the, the reason that the reform probably won't do as well is because the Conservatives are sticking to the Rwanda plan and that is their answer to reform yeah. and yeah, that's yeah, our yeah. answer to the right and obviously Nigel Farage has, has a has a choice to make of if he's going to play a big part of the election campaign A. Why would he do that if he doesn't believe that he's going to win a seat and he hasn't so far but yeah, B. I'd be
0: surprised if he stood for MP He's been burnt too many times, right? But
3: even, even like you know, we've 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 seen stories in the newspapers that he is considering playing some part in the, in the next campaign. And he's done his own polling, and he's shown that he even if he doesn't campaign, he can win about four million votes. And he knows that he's going to have some influence. But but the price that he knows if he does do that is splitting the Conservatives and allowing Labour to win in more <laughs> seats. And he does not want that. And he, yeah. he'd rather see a Conservative government than see a Labour government overall. So if you're him, why would you give Keir Starmer if you know that bigger Majority or, or, or deprive him, deprive the Conservatives of a chance. Like if I yeah. were him, if I you would can't step drag,
1: back.
0: Yeah, if you can't drag them to where you want them.
1: Well, the thing is, like migration is the thing for reform, isn't it? Because up until recently, they were a kind of amorphous sort, sort of protest of lockdown, party, lockdown right? sceptic, sort of slightly weird. Essentially, if you were a party. Tory but you didn't like yeah. the
0: Tories, you would sort of step, yeah you'd go towards reform. Because the whole right?
1: thing about the Brexit Party was essentially it was a single issue party, and that's why it was so effective. And the fact it didn't have huge like national infrastructure wasn't a huge problem because they were just, it was what they were saying on the airwaves. The fact they didn't have like legions of volunteers on the ground it didn't really matter. Yeah. So I think how migration plays out in the next few months and more pertinently how the government is seen to have handled migration a lot of reforms success or lack of will hinge on that I think Great well just before we wrap up then one of the big event
0: obviously in politics this year is the US election and if Joe Biden wins it won't make a huge difference but obviously the threat of a Trump second term I suppose is is worrying lots of people in in Whitehall so do you think there's going to be a bit of kind of overshadowing perhaps of events in in Westminster if the Trump show kind of gets back in town again
2: I I think it will be yeah I think there's going to be a big for all if it looks like Trump is heading towards victory um, in an election the the real question will be what a Starmer and a, a Trump <laughs> relationship potentially looks like I yeah, know oh, yeah, yeah. it seems so um, well, didn't Corbyn once have a
0: meeting with Trump when uh, I think when Corbyn was Labour leader and Trump was the presumptive nominee I think that, probably yeah, I'd, because, love yeah, I mean, about. I'd love to have been a follow I'd love to be on a fly on the wall in that conversation I mean yeah. it is
2: the special relationship so you have to tend to it and actually there was um, an event not so long ago where um, we were talking about this and people who know foreign affairs far better than me were pointing out that actually the special relationship is not just the two it's not just the president of the prime minister it's all the officials behind the scenes as well and even if you have someone like Trump in in government in in the US who might be a bit unpredictable you know that there's so much bureaucracy there and infrastructure there that means that that relationship would still stay yeah. hopefully fairly sane but absolutely there, there are going to be questions about that and if you know the relationship with the US and the UK looks increasingly unreliable or problematic it'd be interesting to see where Starmer presuming he will be prime minister but who Whoever is Prime Minister, start to lay their cards with the EU and other allies, um, and how those relationships are built and how they respond to national security concerns. Because obviously, we have these major conflicts now in the Middle East in Ukraine, that require a global response.
0: Mm. Yeah, Tash, have you picked up any of that with the, the kind of the, obviously, the support from the Republicans is starting to wane massively, we've seen Zelensky in Washington, trying to sort of keep that, there's been a big block on sort of budgeting from the from the US government towards Ukraine, obviously, there's also Israel. and and the stuff in Gaza, and obviously a Trump administration would act quite differently, I think, to a Biden administration, um, certainly uh, with regards to Ukraine. is you picked up any kind of nervousness from the UK side about what would happen if Trump does get back in for a second term, given that we know that he's going to, you know, tear it up in terms of the constitutional stuff?
3: I haven't picked up on any of that, but I think there will obviously be some of that behind the scenes going on right now. And I think what's very interesting is obviously we have seen a few warning cries coming out from Ukraine. You've seen, you know, Mrs. Zelensky uh, out a couple of uh, weeks ago uh, saying, you know, we can't forget the fight on Ukraine and I haven't picked up Rishi Sunak really grabbing that mantle, mantle on that one which mm. I think is an interesting move and yeah, I think since
0: Ben Wallace left as defense secretary he, it's not his it's not, not his
3: priority for sure and it, it hasn't been for for a while but I think I wonder if you know he might choose to pick that up if he feels that it would help be beneficial to him in an election campaign um, especially to separate yourself from the Donald Trumps of the world yeah, yeah. Uh, and to come in and say actually I promise I will give more to Ukraine but we're still waiting for uh, I think UK funding has run out at the end of last year and as yeah. far as I know we were still waiting to find out how it will be funded this year coming so I think there's a lot of questions and like I say Rishi Sunak's got a new defence secretary and we haven't really heard quite as much from Mr Shaps as we did from Ben Wallace.
1: Well just speaking about like just the news as well I mean I think Tash is probably best place to speak to this because LBC's mother a live news operation Paul Holmes. But if the two elections broadly coincide and the campaigns happen at the same time, let's say the Tories are still significantly behind, let's say 10, 11 points, and it's you who's on the back foot and needs to the you on TV and on the radio. If Trump goes and says something wild or outrageous and all the cameras, all the news channels, all the radio go, go to wherever he is in a campaign trail in America, and that means fewer eyes, fewer ears on Rishi Sunak, then that is a suboptimal, yeah, and, situation. And, and if you are behind in the polls, the, the first
0: question at a press conference might be reacting yeah. to what Trump has said rather than mm. reacting to what he said. And we saw what happened. We talked about that tetchiness earlier. What famously when Chris Mason, the BBC political editor, asked him at a summit and asked him about something, totally different. I think it was about Narendra Zahawi when he was in as Chancellor was in was in trouble.
3: It was about Priti Patel and It was about her, Priti Patel um, and her driving.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, he
3: did not like that. No.
0: And he he just sort of stared at him and he said, said, said "Aren't you going to ask questions? Any about the questions about the summit? summit? Mm. Um, you know that that's a similar thing that is, is, is going to happen." But so you saw that
3: with. Um, Theresa May and Donald Trump because they were such at odds, weren't they? Yeah. Um, and she just apart got apart from asked. the handholding, obviously. Apart from that weird, <laughs> weird moment, but they were they were really at odds, and she got asked every every time that she could. Exactly. Oh, do Famously. you agree with Donald? Do you agree with Donald mm-hmm. Trump on this? Do you agree with Donald? Famously, Trump on she was the
0: first guest on Sophie Ridge's program on Sky News, and he asked him about the uh, Trump's indelicate comments about women, and it completely put Theresa <laughs> on the back foot. She hated it, and I don't think a minister was on Sophie Ridge's program for about a month afterwards because mm. they were so annoyed of it. And that's some of the things I suppose could happen. It's really do
3: risky you, having an at the same time I think. Yeah
0: absolutely. Do
3: you remember back
2: when Corbyn was uh, running to be Prime Minister and he got really sort of tripped out during a um, one of the leadership televised debates over nuclear disarmament and whether he would you know push the red button i think there's basically what they kept <laughs> asking. Got asked a lot of the times would you yeah.
3: like, would and, you destroy the world he was you
2: know? he was very kind of you know principled about it in his way a lot of people didn't like that yeah. and uh, these are the, exactly the sort of issues that can actually become really tense at election time where it's like you know do you agree with what donald trump has just said this insane thing that donald trump's just said and if you kind of flip-flop around it and you're wishy-washy that really reflects badly on you as well. And if you are super principled and you say yes or no, you're going to get heat for that. So I, I think these these two leadership c- contests running at the same time can actually be very problematic and can throw up issues, especially when the the leader on the other side of the world, the potential leader on the other side of the world can say all these things that really, you
3: you know, you never predicted and you never thought he'd say. It's no. not the stability that Rishi Sunak wants to, mm. yeah. to
0: resonate. Well, I, I, then I, that's finally then, just final thing then, we talked about whether you're going to have those two elections at the same time. I, I said when I... Ask you to be on the podcast I wasn't going to make you do loads of predictions but I am going to ask for one one final prediction there now I want A date not you know summer or autumn or spring or whatever i want an actual date when you think the election is going to be and then i will hold you to it so tash i'm gonna i'm gonna you're looking annoyed so i'm gonna go to you no no no
3: feel free um i think (laughs) the conservatives should go on may 2nd right i think it would help them to go on may 2nd i think people feel slightly more optimistic in summer than they do in winter when they're looking to christmas and i don't think things will have materially changed for the conservatives between May and October, November. Mm. And I think, like I say, the Tories will get much more airtime if they go in May. And there than could they be a would. summer of small boats crisis. And there will it, be a summer know. of small boats. I think that, you know, mortgage rates may have started to peak or just at least keep peak. The economy might be okay. And it's just waiting lists. Mm, not sure about that one, but it, they might be okay. But I just think waiting a few more months will make Snac look weaker. And... Well, no
0: one wants to imagine this whole thing going on exactly for another...
3: another it just feels like w- the country is ready for this and I think they should and I think they would be better off to go on May 2nd whether or not they will do I think we'll get a decision probably February or yeah, March I whether they might, will do or not. That might fall
0: on deaf ears in, in number 10 so I'm going to go with you then what do you think?
2: <laughs> I agree I was going to say May 2nd as well actually I was going to say May 9th but I think it's
0: my <laughs> poor calculations
2: rather oh,
3: whenever the locals go yes. the day yeah. everybody should go on the same day. Yeah. 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 So I,
2: I agree with you I think May would be the best bet the reason I, I think they probably won't hold their nerve over the summer is because i think they'll be worried about small boat crossings i think there's a potential that more of the economic issues could actually dampen you know we could see people start talking about recession again what i could imagine is in spring they do this budget where they find loads of room for loads of cool stuff that's going to make everyone feel way better off and then after that they call an election on the back of all these promises to make people feel much better off. We know that Labour officials are planning for a May election. I don't think that tells us anything specifically rather than they're just planning they for... They need possible. to be ready. And most of well time are going to exactly. be
3: ready for May. Yeah, after four May. years, yeah. if you
0: got surprised by it, you'd not be doing a job Exactly, well, right?
2: but I think they also might think the earlier they call it, the more it can be almost like a sneak attack where it's like, you know, Labour are probably thinking they're going to hold out till the last opportunity and, and they, they go
0: early. They go, yeah. And
2: um, um, I, well,
1: I'm going to break from from go for consensus. Always the iconoclast. I'd, I think you should go in May. I agree with Tash. I'd like them to go in May because <laughs> so I think an election in May is a much more pleasant prospect. Yes. Very selfishly. <laughs> Having covered a December election last time, I can. I agree grim. with you, yes. Um, but I think it will be autumn. I'm going to go Halloween. Ooh. Um, they
3: will want to do it not on the same week, an ideally month as, as the US, would US. they? And I think is it November the
1: 7th? Yeah. Th- yeah. So I'm gonna say Halloween because I think ultimately the Prime Minister and his advisors' fundamental instincts, survival instincts will kick in and I think they'll just wait for something to turn up. Yeah. In the time between May So October. do they
3: come back from the summer corner election as soon as they come back from the summer recess?
1: That wasn't
0: put to me as one of the (laughs) questions. Sorry, I'm now the interviewer. No, but what's what's interesting is that uh, you know if you think about if this is going to be a very costly election. Tories certainly make a lot of money yeah. from having a party conference, mm-hmm. so actually you could you could go have a party conference season and call the election, and also in cance- your conference. Canceling cance- con- cance- con- like cance-
1: a, a conference is very expensive as well. Exactly, so call
0: a conference, your conference speech, and go after that. But yeah, you, you're sort of pushing it there. But I so
2: Labour. and if they get as many kind of investors and big businesses turning up as they did last year, they might be better to no, you don't get your conference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: our war chest is bigger than yours currently, <laughs> yeah. so we're going to go for it now. No, okay, well that's that's great. I, I think uh, I think that's a good good split between them. I'm, I'm probably more edging towards Adams simply because the conversations I've had with, with, with MPs, not just people around number 10, but normal MPs, that none of them are really planning for a, for a May one. They seem to be thinking it's going to be for better or worse, probably later in the year. So we'll have to see. That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com. And keep right up to date by subscribing to our 7 day week newsletters by clicking on the link on our homepage. Thanks again to my brilliant guests, Zoe Grunewald and Natasha Clark, along with top colleague Adam Payne. Thanks all again for listening. Please subscribe, wherever you your podcast and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at politicshome or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown.